it uh, reminds me that our time together as a big family reunion is coming to an end. It's been so good to get a chance to sing together, to pray together, to hear some great preaching by women and men of faith. It has been a joy for me, as always, to catch up and to see how much older you look. Uh, <laughs> no, you look just like Father, for your blessings, for the sunshine, for the joy of Harvard, thank you. For the word, the word that was engraved on stone, the word that was written on parchment, the word that was written by Paul or his menensis in a prison cell, the word most important that became flesh and dwelt among us. May we ever seek to live in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Okay, for those who said, this is interesting. I mean, Jeff, did you just, you know, wake up with a, uh, eating too much pizza and have a bad night and all of a sudden thought about this? Uh, I want to turn you on to a book if you're interested in reading a little more by Andy Stanley. The book is simply called Irresistible. You will pick up some of the same concepts that I was talking about here. Uh, Andy sometimes goes a little farther than I'm comfortable, but that's the way we are with good books, right? You know, we read them, they stretch us. And we spit the bones out, as my dad used to say, when you're eating the chicken. Uh, for those who have not been with us, uh, is there anybody who was not here yesterday or the day before? Okay, all right. For a couple of you then, uh, wow, uh, listen to the uh, online streaming, uh, because we've gone a long way. I began with the reality that I do love the Old Testament, was raised learning those stories, but as I grew, struggled with some of the blood, the violence, the death of innocence. All those who were wiped out in the flood when Noah and his family were saved. All of the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Parasites, all the ites that were, that were dealt with when the Israelites came into the land. I believe that the Hebrew scriptures, and you're going to hear me try and use that in my preaching. I believe the Hebrew scriptures are God's word to God's people at that time. They are inspired, they're important, they're there for us to study. We are to learn from David and from Jacob, and from Joseph. But the Old Covenant is not our covenant. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. That should be great news to us. That Jesus said, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. The term that he uses there is a term for to finish it up, to make it complete, to close the door. It's when the plane has landed. It's when the book is concluded. And that plane has landed, the accounts closed, the old is gone, and the new has come. And if we miss it, let me let the Hebrew writer make it plain. In the past, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Everybody say Old Testament. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Just by the way, that's kind of a little small resume note for Jesus. He is not only the Son of God and Savior of mankind, but through whom he made the universe. I believe the Hebrew writer takes great pains to say, Old Covenant, great fulfilled. In fact, obsolete and undated. His language, not mine. So you say, Jeff, why are you hammering this? Because in my life, I have found myself reaching back to get an Old Testament Lego and stick it on a New Testament Lord. I have reached back to concepts and ideas that I should have let go of. The problem with Deuteronomistic theology, that is the theology of the old law, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, you do this and I'll do this. You do this and you get blessing. You do this and you get curses, is that it is not a new covenant concept. It is a, well, I suppose one could say it is a practical kind of proverbial thing. You know, you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And yet we know bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to old law as a slave master. 
He describes it as a burden from which we have been released. The gospel is beautiful and compelling, but the old covenant was a burden. Galatians 5, 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now Paul is frustrated because there are people who are coming around, it seems, behind him in his missionary journey. And he'll preach one thing. I don't know if you've ever been to some place where a preacher has said something in the pulpit. And at the closing prayer, one of the elders kind of does clean up on aisle three. <laughs> well, appreciate Brother Bob's sermon this morning. And you know when he said we ought to all clap our hands for what God has done. I know he didn't mean in here. All right. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know. Some of the Judaizers were doing that behind Paul. They'd come in right behind and say, yes, this new covenant is wonderful. We also need you to know that there's some old covenant issues you need to deal with. So let's talk circumcision. And when the word got back to Paul, his face went red and he grabbed a quill and he wrote to the church in Galatia, this area, one of the most frustrating, if not angry, writings. Paul, is it really a problem? Oh, brother, what's the big deal? So what if they get circumcised? And Paul says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, okay, this next sentence should shock us. Christ will be of no value to you at all. Paul, Jesus who you love, Jesus who you've given your life to, he'll be of no value. Listen.
it has to do with the fact that you're human. Jesus calls on me to love you. Let's be real. Those are the kind of statements that are easy to have roll off your tongue. But when you're put in that place and put in that moment with somebody who feels like they have been put upon and marginalized, and they're wanting to flare out as, as, some, as best they can express it, I am gay, deal with it.
so ingrained it's going to be. It's even why we ask questions like, well, but Lord, what can I do to get closer to God? Okay, time out. Let's, let's parse that. That sounds wonderful. What can I do to get closer to God? It's simply the flip side of, is this a sin? See, I don't want to mess up my relationship with God, so tell me what I can do. How do I get closer to God? Tell me what I can do. Some of you say, wait a minute, Jeff. Fasting, praying, meditation, those are all good things, but let us never think, Old Testament Lego, that we're going to go do something. And God will say, okay, come on in. That was good. You gave that sacrifice, so that's great. You put that on the altar. That's wonderful. That's Old Testament, Old Covenant thinking. not even looking at you. I don't want to sin because I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to sin because I don't want to mess up with you. What can I do to get closer to God? What can I do to get closer to God? And I think Jesus wants to say, how about get close to them? Well, they're not you. I know. But a new command I have for you, Jeff. Love Do you know why I need to fast? Do you know why I need to bring my life into order? Because if I don't, I'm going to hurt you. And I'm going to maybe set a bad example for you. You see, Jesus' way of living asks not, is that a commandment? Is that in the Ten Commandments? It asks, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? What does Christ's life love require of me? As I said yesterday, I'll take the Old Testament the Old Commandments just hands down over that question. I can work loopholes on laws. You can't work a loophole on love. <coughs> I can say the law doesn't demand this. But I can't tell my wife love doesn't demand it. I never promised you I'd do this. First, just to note that the Old Testament is for inspiration, example, in the history of Israel. It is not the foundation of my faith. And, and I, I want to say this carefully and gently. If you get nervous when somebody says, well, I think, you know, this in the Old Testament may not be exactly factual, or that in the Old Testament may not be exactly factual, if you start freaking out and saying, oh my goodness, what's, what's going to happen to the foundation of my faith? If there was, if the scientists did figure out that, uh, this part of the Exodus didn't exactly happen, or that this part of the Canaanite slaughter, or that the worldwide flood. And I'm not saying they've gotten there. I don't believe they ever will. But just go with me for a minute. What if they did? And everybody believed it. Oh, no. And you were laying in bed saying, if there was no world flood of Noah, there probably is no Jesus. Time out.
not even be real. I, I don't exist because of the Bible. I exist because of Jesus Christ. He loved me so much that he gave himself for me. I exist because there is a God who loves me. And yes, it is scripture. But you see, to be honest, scripture didn't teach me about Jesus. Because before I could read, people, people loved me and showed me what Jesus looked like. People talked about Christ. That's why, that's why Jesus says, you know, please, Lord, make them one, even those who will follow after them. It's about people when it comes to Jesus. Love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples. So here we go. Recognize the Old Testament was never for me. It's not my covenant. Quit trying to sand off the edges and make it look like Jesus would say, yeah, that's sweet. It isn't sweet. It's not supposed to be sweet. It's bloody and vicious and brutal. And we look back and say, praise God. That's not my covenant. And thank you, Lord, for what you did to get my covenant in place. Second, take your cue from the covenant for you. I stole it. I like it. Take your cue from the covenant for you. Come on and say it. Take your cue from the covenant for you. John 15, 35, a new command I give you, the way of love, all those one another commands of loving one another, being patient with one another. That's our covenant. It is a covenant that calls me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus wraps it up in love as I love you. Jesus loved me with truth and Jesus loved me with grace for he was full of both. One another commands me another. It presses us into the horizontal. That's Jesus. And by the way, if the church just did this, our reputation would change rapidly and drastically. Instead of a group that says us four and no more, we would be, there's always room at the table of God for you. And we're here to love you, not to judge you. By the way, we don't let anybody into or out of heaven. Amen? We can't kick anybody out. We can't let anybody in. That's God's job. What we're called on to do is love point them toward the Father who loved them and a Jesus who died for them. Lean into Jesus' love command. I love 1 John 4, 16 through 17, for this writer who knows him so well said this, God is love. Let's read it together. God is love. One more time. This shocked them when they read it. God is love. He says, whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. This is how love is made complete among us. I used to read this and think, oh, goodness, John, you're like Oprah. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> It's just so mushy, gushy. Where's the do what's right? You need to straighten up and you need to get your life in order. Pardon me. Let me put that Lego back in the box because that's where I got it. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? Go your way. Say no more. That's interesting. He didn't say first. You need to stop saying. I'm not going to be scared on the day of judgment because I don't think I don't think I studied enough. I don't think I, I prayed enough. If anything, my confidence on the day of judgment, according to John, who knows Jesus pretty well, is this. Hey, I won't be confident. 
Go ahead. You know the person next to you and say, get ready. I got a letter. Go ahead and tell him. Go ahead and tell him. Fourthly, I want to put Jesus front and center and trust what he did. Trust his resurrection. Trust the fulfillment of what he did. Which is why Paul, when he goes to Corinth, Paul doesn't go in with a hack of Old Testament sermons. He goes in and says, and so with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with, pardon me, I did not come with eloquence or with human wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. How'd you do it? I told you about the Ten Commandments. I told you the story of the Old Testament. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Praise God. That's the core. That's the center. That's the heart. Which leads me to this last little suggestion. I want to be thoughtful about my words, and maybe you do too. The phrase the Bible says was one I grew up with. And the problem with the phrase the Bible says is you have no idea what part of the Bible says it when somebody says the Bible says. And it's not really fair to say, do this because the Bible says, right? Well, all right, then you better stop with the bacon because the Bible says stop eating that. Oh, no, 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 not part of the Bible. Well, so instead, I'm trying to train myself to say, as Jesus says, or as Paul says, or as Peter says, or as James says. One, we've got hearers who need to understand these were followers of Jesus that God inspired to write it. And two, when I am speaking from the Hebrew scriptures, you say, Jeff, why, why do you call it that? Because that's what the Hebrews call it. <laughs> if you come up to Taylor and start calling him Bobby, I'm not going to hate you, but I'm going to go, that's weird. That's my son. Why are you calling him your name for him? If you heard the rabbis, he uses Hebrew scriptures. Guess what it does? It helps me when I'm talking with a new believer or someone to, without saying, now there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's Hebrew scriptures. And then there's the New Testament. There's Hebrew scriptures. And then there's the words and teaching of Jesus and the apostles. No denigration. Just I think in this culture, a clearer presentation. So what would happen if each of us got up each day and said, what does love require of you? What would happen if we just started our day and said, that's my
to the freedom of the lonely. How can we reach out to, I don't care if we're talking about the politicians in our city or the meth addicts in our city. How can we reach out to the single population? How can we reach out to our seniors? Follow Jesus' command. Love others as he's loved you. We all lean in to love. Come, if a waiter or waitress is gentle, kind, and smiles at times, we're like, I'm just going to take her home. I'd just like to take him home with me. Wasn't he just the nicest thing? Maybe that's where we started. We started deciding I'm going to bring my smile to church. And then I'm going to take it into work. And when somebody's cussing up a blue tree, I'm not going to give them the evil eye or tell them they're going to hell. I'm going to try and be as kind and loving as I possibly can. And when someone is even saying things I disagree with, I'm not going to reach back to Old Testament concepts and say, well, I'm going to straighten him out. <laughs> By the way, you say, well, what if he's a Christian? Sorry for the facetiousness. I'm, I'm talking to myself here because I think, yeah, but if he's a believer, he knows better. Yeah, and so do I. So what do you do? Scripture says love him and, and gently, gently. I love the one that says, correct him as you would your father. Yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke. Right? <laughs> Which means lovingly, gently, and with lots of grace. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us the strength and the ability to let go of a broken covenant, a covenant that was for a purpose, for a time, and for a people. God, I thank you for the Old Testament. I thank you that for us, those stories can move us and inspire us. But Father, help us not to grab Old Testament thinking, Old Covenant theology, and try and bring it into our New Testament lives. Father, I thank you for the songs, those that are so beautiful and, and where we can hear, it seems, the voice of Jesus in tenderness in them. But Father, help us to always understand that we just have to put Jesus first and center and look through his filter at everything in the Old Testament. And if anything I find there prompts me to an unchristlike, unloving action, God, drag me to my knees and give the Holy Spirit power to help me understand what I need to do. For I want to be a person. Oh, Lord, we want to be people who through the Spirit's power, not ours, are seen to ask, what does love require in a Christ-like way? And then obey. And I pray that in Christ Jesus' holy name and all that agree say, Amen. Five years ago, long after my father had died, I got to pay back a debt. My dad had a little group of young men at our church that he, every year, would try and get to give a little lesson, a little sermon. My first one was about four minutes, and it was on Noah, of all things. I remember standing up on a box behind the pulpit so that I could be seen. I remember giving it, and I remember folks coming up afterwards, little sweet little ladies and gentlemen who would say, oh my goodness, you did so good. I bet you're going to be a preacher one day. You have no idea what that meant to me. Or how it impacted me. And some of those other young men. When my father died, every one of his pallbearers were preachers that he had mentored into ministry. 
so thankful for Pepperdine University and donors who have helped make this possible. So five years ago, we launched one little, tiny, there are many things that have been going on here for years in other churches and uh, colleges, but one little, tiny program called the Next Gen Preacher Search. The Next Gen Preacher Search is simply a project in which we offer opportunity for young people to get a chance to, to be encouraged, to be challenged, and to be coached in preaching and teaching. Men and women who may be in high school or in college, and you're going to hear some high schoolers and some college students in just a moment. We select four out of, you know, we'll get nearly 100 submissions, and then we'll go down to about 20, and then we'll finally get down to about four. And those four are our ambassadors. They'll speak here and several other places. This is not about about sending you back with a challenge. Pray for them. And I bet there's a high school or a church church that already doing that little five-minute video on throwing it in. Or maybe just, if you're a preacher, grab a couple of those kids and say, hey, two months from now, you're going to do five minutes of the lesson and you're going to do five minutes of the lesson. What? Yep. And we're going to meet and pray and talk and work on it. Who knows how God may use that? Somebody asked me, well, what's happened to them? I went back and did a little bit of quick research. Our first year, we had four next-gen preacher search ambassadors. And here's where they are today. Zane Witcher is preaching and teaching uh, and doing youth ministry at the University Church in Abilene, Texas. Alex Jamarison is preaching all across the country and working with Harding. But Alex preached some for the church in Ferguson, Missouri. Name sounds familiar. Lauren King is a youth minister at the Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. And Mitchell East preaches for the University Avenue Church in Austin, Texas. And oh, by the way, he was a teacher here at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures this year. I am so thankful that we could do some small part of wind under their wings and to see them now. And there are others. I just didn't get a chance to do all the research. One of our next year preachers, which ambassadors for last year, is going to be in a month starting his internship with the Church of Christ in Chattanooga as a youth minister. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just small ways that we can both give them a little leg up. No, I need to stop talking and let them talk. You're going to hear one lesson from the Old Testament and three from the New in the next few minutes. Short, short messages, but with deep, deep content. And we'll begin with John Guy from Vero Beach, Florida, who's going to take us all the way back to a story from David. Uh, he'll save all your applause for the end, except for right now.
heard it in 2 Samuel 12, the women who say they. Or the wives who say they. <laughs> we grow up hearing a lot about this David character. He defeated a giant with just a sling. He was a great warrior, had great piety. He was a man after God's own heart. He had an almost faultless rule as king. Almost. Because, you see, this pristine image of David that we grow up hearing about in Sunday school, one day, it cracks. One day, David abuses his power and lays with another man's wife. And all of a sudden, we start to hear the knock. So does David. But like most of us, he buries deep behind lies, behind conspiracy, behind murder. time passes. A child is born to David, and life goes on. That knock becomes a rhythmic normality, a steady hum of the AC. David now rules his kingdom deathless, desensitized to the knock, and the hope of Israel is put in a precarious position. Through David's actions, she becomes vulnerable, and the God of Israel is not pleased. And so we read in 2 Samuel 12. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and one was poor. The rich man had owned a great many sheep and cattle, but the poor man, he owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his own cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. However, one day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. And David listened, and he did what rulers do. He gave an appropriate sentence. He said, surely this man must die. And Nathan responded with a resounding knock. You are that man. What David had worked so hard to bury was finally uncovered. And David stood incriminated, an adulterer, and a murderer before God and man. And the knock of David's brokenness, his sin, his shame, his guilt, rang clearer than ever before. Do you hear it now? Do you hear the sound of your own brokenness? Or is it hidden away, buried behind lies, behind deceit, behind the masks that we live in? I hear it. I hear the sound of my own brokenness, and I hate that I hear it. And I try to bury it away, but just like David and Nathan, it always resurfaces. You and I must hear the sound. We must hear the knock. Because while the hope of Israel teeters on the edge of a knife, and while we stand here trying to bury it away, Jesus hears our knock. Jesus hears the sound of our own brokenness, and he responds. He responds with three knocks of his own, nails being driven into a cross, and on that cross, he made our brokenness whole. And that, that is really good. 
cross of Christ takes care of our pain and our brokenness. That is really good news in that cross of Christ that serves as our point of pivoting here. We pivot from these old covenant scriptures to the new covenant scriptures where we look at, at Paul's words to the Corinthians and we see how Paul addresses this idea of pain and brokenness. And when it comes to pain, I've got one word for you. Theragesic. <laughs> it's a maximum strength pain-relieving cream. And it comes in this little bottle. It kind of looks like a bottle of toothpaste. Uh, at least that's what I thought when I was getting ready to brush my teeth one morning. Uh, it doesn't taste like toothpaste. Uh, it, it doesn't make a good toothpaste, but it makes a great pain-relieving cream. Uh, anytime that I have sore muscles, I can just pop this tab open, and I can apply this pain-relieving cream to my, my sore muscles. And it relieves that pain. It's this amazing pain-relieving cream, but there's a problem. There's one muscle... Because if I'm being honest, the, the worst pains that I've felt in this life have not been in my calves or my biceps. The worst pain I've ever felt in my lifetime has been in my heart. And I would imagine that it's the same way for you. Maybe for you it was a death. Maybe it was depression. Maybe you've been having some doubts or maybe you got dumped. Maybe you just come from a dysfunctional family. And any one of those circumstances could qualify as a painful time. Those are painful things to endure. And if you're like me, you start to wonder, well, God, how am I supposed to make it through these painful times? Because you, you didn't give me any therapeutic. You didn't give me a pain-relieving cream. So how do we endure the painful times in this life? And I think Paul is an excellent person to consult on this matter because Paul has experienced so many more kinds of pain than I can, could even imagine experiencing. The man was shipwrecked, snake-bitten, and imprisoned multiple times. So he knows pain. And he describes these painful times that he and the other apostles experience, and he explains them in his letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul uses this really vivid imagery to communicate the painful times that he's been going through. This is what he says. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. And your translation there might say we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. And what Paul is saying there is everywhere we go, it feels like we are being pressed upon intensely with an intense amount of pressure on every single side. We're under intense amounts of pressure, but we're not crushed. God helps us to endure that sort of but I wonder how. Yeah, yeah, Paul, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that God helped you endure this painful time. But how did God help you endure this painful time? Because I need to know. Because I've got painful times of my own, and you've got painful times that you go through. And we need to know how to endure them. And so Paul continues, and he continues with these illustrations. And he's driving this point, showing us that he is able to endure painful times. He says we are per perplexed. I don't always understand what I'm supposed to do next. Even though I'm a, uh, an apostle, I don't know what the next step in God's plan is all the time. But I'm never driven to the point where I'm ready to give up 
on following Jesus. And then he continues and he says, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. So the world has turned against us. The world hates us, and, and we know it. It's pretty clear, but God hasn't turned against us. God is still with us. He's on our side. He's present, and he empowers us to endure the painful times in this life. And then he says, we are struck down, but not destroyed. He says, we've been knocked down, but we haven't been knocked out. And, and Paul is communicating this idea that he is able to endure these painful times. God's helping him through, and I think Paul starts to us how, as he continues in this chapter. He, he starts to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. He starts to talk about, because Jesus has come back from the dead, you guys can come back from the dead one day too. You're followers of Jesus, so you're going to get to spend eternity in the presence of your king, in the presence of your savior. You're going to be face to face with Jesus, and that changes the way you see everything. It changes the way you see the pain in the present. And, and he starts to talk about this future hope that these Christians can have. He says in verses 16 and 17, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Paul is driving this idea that the future hope that we have, the hope that we have of an eternity spent with Jesus helps us recognize that our pain, it can be endured. He, he's driving this idea. We can make it through the painful times because eternity is on our mind. And that doesn't mean that God's going to put an end to our pain. But it does mean that God has provided a way to put our pain into perspective. We can look toward the future and see that what's coming is so much greater than the pain we're experiencing right now Gentiles sent by God with his authority, and he looks like this. 
But despite what the Corinthians thought, Paul wrote them a letter, and he said, Hey, church, don't forget, you have been entrusted with the most beautiful honor. You carry the incredible treasure like none other. You know what it is? It's the good news that God in his great love and in his mercy would come to us who were sinners and who made mistakes and messed up and say, those mess ups deserve death. But I'm going to give you life. Now that's treasure. Am I right? <laughs> treasure that God entrusts to the likes of these? The most unimpressive, ordinary container ever. Look, I know that this isn't a container. This is a shoe. <laughs> these are both shoes. But that's what a vessel is. A vessel is a container. And it, containers carry things. They carry things of value. Actually, the focal point of a container is not itself. It's what it carries. So if it looks perfect on the outside, it might even distract from what it's holding. But God chooses to entrust the most powerful display of his glory to the cracks and the holes and the imperfections. Which vessel would you want to treasure more? What the Corinthians are hearing Paul tell them is that if they want to be like Jesus and they want to display his glory, then they might need to look a little more like this. Perplexed, afflicted, persecuted, struck down. In verse 10, he goes on to say, carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. The dying.
God came down from heaven to earth to be a human. He was spit on, he was beaten, and he died. That's the epitome of broken, if you ask me. And why on earth would he do that? Why would he die for us? Because he loves us. And he wants to save us from our sins. He did it so that we selfish humans have clear evidence, obvious proof, that he knows how it feels. He doesn't just go, oh, I'm so sorry, and then turn his back on us. He says, let me give you my life because you are not capable of living yours by yourself and surviving. The love is seeping through his chips and cracks. And his relationship with us is what gives us life. Just like when we have a relationship with other people, we can share the true life of Jesus with them. We're all just a bunch of clay jars. But we contain the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus inside. And the Holy Spirit, and we are called to pour those out in the world. And brothers and sisters, if this is true, then I say, Tip me over, pour me out, and let this clay jar break. Because we are most like Christ when we are broken. And we can make it through the painful times because eternity is on our minds. Don't be afraid of your brokenness. Because God, God loves brokenness.